0: U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry has always been a forest guy.
1: Forests are, without exaggeration, one of the most important means to achieving a net zero emissions future by 2050.
0: Everybody's finally talking about net zero, which, as I've mentioned a lot these past few months, is different from carbon neutral. Net zero is the end point in the climate challenge, the checkmate, the point where we deliver the coup de gras on climate change. It's where we arrive after we've eliminated all of the greenhouse gas emissions that we can eliminate and are using trees and technology to suck the remainder out of the atmosphere. It's also where we have to be by 2050 to meet the climate challenge, or it's us who are checkmated and coup de gras. That's why everyone's talking about carbon removals these days, removing carbon from the atmosphere by planting trees and developing carbon capture technology. But there's been a weird, idiotic shift away from carbon neutrality, which is when you're using carbon markets to reduce emissions and not just remove gases from the atmosphere. The fact is we cannot get to net zero if we don't put money into practices that reduce overall emissions quickly and saving forests is something we can do right now, as today's guest, Aaron Bloomgarten, makes clear.
2: Let's say you wake up in the morning, you walk into your bathroom, and the sink is overflowing, and the tap is on. What's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to turn off the tap, and then you're going to start mopping up the floor. That's the same thing here. We've got to turn off the tap, which is the deforestation, and then we can start cleaning up by restoring and planting
0: forests. Aaron has been working the climate puzzle for more than 20 years, and he's spearheading an initiative called the LEAF Coalition, which aims to change the way we finance forest protection. We'll get to Aaron in a bit, but first, back to John Kerry.
1: It's not just their role in removing carbon. Forests hold this extraordinary importance around the world for people and for the communities that depend on them. Simply put, We need forests for the climate, for the economy, and just for people. I recorded
0: Kerry and the other speakers on today's show on Earth Day a few months back when they got together to announce the LEAF Coalition. LEAF stands for Lowering Emissions by Accelerating Forest Finance, and it's a private-public partnership that aims to inject $1 billion into forest protection now But that's just priming the pump for even bigger flows later.
1: The launch of the LEAF Coalition is a major step for the protection of one of our most critical resources in the fight against the climate crisis. We can't reach our goal of global vision for net zero emissions by 2050 without halting deforestation and starting the hard work of restoring forests, and other ecosystems globally.
0: We need to expand forests to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, but we also need to save forests if we're to be carbon neutral now. If you're a regular listener, you've heard this before, and I apologize if it's getting a bit tiring. And you've also heard that carbon neutral is where a company can be today while it's still transitioning away from fossil fuels and towards achieving net zero emissions by 2050. Lots of companies are setting these net zero goals 20 or 30 years in the future, and there is a growing movement to ensure those goals come with interim targets that keep them honest. That means targets that say you have to achieve certain reductions by certain dates rather than waiting until the last minute and trying to do it all at once. That's great, but this emphasis on net zero 20 or 30 years in the future has distracted us from being carbon neutral, in part because some in the climate community fear the opposite of the fear that I'm expressing. They fear that emphasizing carbon neutral distracts from the ultimate goal of getting to net zero. I disagree. Today we pick that argument apart while diving into a new initiative that can finally scale up the funding that flows into forest protection.
1: Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face, we should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies.
0: Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And it's a question today's guest, Aaron Bloomgarten, has been grappling with for more than 20 years. First at the nonprofit Surfrider Foundation, then at the very for-profit IBM, and ever since at finance groups like Echo Securities and Echo Asset Management Partners. Today, he runs the Emergent Forest Finance Accelerator, which forged the LEAF Coalition.
3: If Tropical Forests were a human invention, it would have received numerous Nobel Prizes.
0: This is Norwegian Prime Minister Erna Solberg also speaking at the launch of Leaf.
3: Tropical forests essential for climate, for biodiversity, water supply and food production. They are essential for indigenous peoples and for the livelihoods of many. Still, deforestation will always in the short term financially benefit those who deforest. Government action is therefore critical, but this comes at a cost, and when forest countries protect their forests, they deserve support and recognition. This is where the LEAF coalition comes in. It will channel private and public finance at scale to time.
0: If all this sounds familiar, it's because LEAF is a form of REDD+, which stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation, Plus Conservation, Sustainable Management of Forests, and Enhancement of Carbon Stocks in Developing Countries. Yes, it's a mouthful. And I covered the history of REDD+, in a three-part series called Forests in the Paris Agreement, which you can find in Episodes 49, 50, and 51 of Bionic Planet. The problem with Red Plus is that it costs a lot to save forests, but companies haven't wanted to pay for it. What's new with LEAF is the scale and the price. They're putting a billion dollars into forest conservation, and they're paying $10 for every metric ton of carbon dioxide that's kept out of the atmosphere by doing so. That's about twice the going market price but it's still way too low if we honestly want to help developing countries save their forests. John Kerry again.
1: I believe it is the first time that companies and governments have come together to support forest and climate efforts at this scale. And by working across entire countries, states, territories, or provinces, we help ensure that emissions reductions are supported by government policy as well as by indigenous peoples, local communities. And the private sector. We've talked about a lot of this before
0: when looking at standalone REDD-plus projects, which are something like first responders in the climate emergency. Sometimes a standalone project can stop deforestation completely in its area, like when they work by helping subsistence farmers increase their yields, because that means the farmers don't have to chop trees. Other times, Red plus projects are more like private security guards who stop a crime in one place only to see the criminals go down the road, like when they work by keeping illegal loggers out of one forest, but not all of them. Projects do deduct some of this leakage from their credits, but a better solution is to have good police and social systems so that you don't have criminal activities in the first place, and that's what jurisdictional Red plus is all about— Jurisdictional Red Plus is when money flows not to isolated projects, but to the jurisdictions in which those projects are nested. LEAF is designed to support jurisdictional programs that may or may not have individual projects nested in them.
1: This helps ensure that deforestation that is stopped in one place does not reappear in another.
0: And LEAF is also a voluntary effort, which means companies that buy offsets for it are doing so to go above and beyond what's required by law. Ernest Solberg again.
3: Companies are doing this voluntarily. They provide large-scale support for tropical forest countries that cut their emissions. The support will help these countries to implement ambitious targets under the Paris Agreement. They do this in addition to cut their own emissions in line with science. The LEAF Coalition will increase climate action from both tropical forest countries and participating companies.
0: And I encourage anyone in need of inspiration to look at Costa Rica. This is the UK's Environment Minister, Lord Zach Goldsmith. They've managed to double their rainforest cover in a generation, putting more than half their country under canopy. And their economy has grown alongside
1: their nature.
0: You may remember this from episode 56, how Costa Rica grew both its forests and its economy. We don't know yet which jurisdictions are going to participate in LEAF. The coalition put out a call for proposals listing criteria for participation. Submissions are now being reviewed as Chris Dragasich from the U.S. State Department explains.
3: Under the LEAF coalition
1: and and specified in the call for proposals, proceeds uh, from emissions reductions are expected to be used by jurisdictions to support their nationally determined contributions, uh, their climate targets under the Paris Agreement, their forest and climate strategies, and sustainable development plans. We will ask jurisdictions to provide a high-level investment framework explaining what that will look like. But I also note that the proposals will be prioritized, including for the full and effective participation of stakeholders, particularly Indigenous peoples and local communities.
0: And companies that join LEAF have to show they're not doing this instead of reducing emissions, but on top of working towards net zero. Here's Jamie Mulligan, Chief Scientist for Amazon.com. Corporate participants in the LEAF Coalition will commit to using independently verified science-based targets to to guide their decarbonization efforts. And to reach net zero across their entire value chains no later than 2050 as part of the Race to Zero campaign, companies will also transparently report both their emissions and the use of carbon credits. There are so many things coming to a head and leaf. Things that have been in the works for decades, and today's guest is uniquely suited to laying them out for us. Before diving into my interview with Aaron Bloomgarden, a bit of housekeeping. I started this show in 2016 when mainstream outlets were still ignoring the climate challenge. I started this on my own time and my own dime, and I rely on listeners like you to keep it going. The one complaint I get the most is that I don't generate enough episodes, and that's something you can help me change. If you think I'm doing a good job on translating these technical issues into plain English and putting them into context for you, and you want more and better episodes, then help me give them to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's Patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Bionic Planet. Bionic Planet is all one word, no dots or dashes. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I do manage to crank out a ton of episodes all at once, you don't get whacked either. The web address, again, is not the Bionic Planet website, but the Patreon website, patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. You know, funny thing, things are looking good in the climate space now in that the entertainment-oriented outlets smell money in covering Climate Now. Suddenly, groups that couldn't be bothered to cover this stuff a year or two ago are stampeding in with million-dollar budgets, full-time staffs, and slick but often superficial productions while I've just had me, and then only in my free time. Well, I've changed that, and I'm now devoting myself primarily to Bionic Planet, freelancing for my former employers it's a risk but it's one I have to take if I'm to increase both the quantity and the quality of these shows if you're a business that wants to sponsor the show or a philanthropist who wants to make a larger donation, I am now fiscally sponsored through Manga Bay as a nonprofit, which means you can make a tax-deductible donation, which can help me generate a lot of episodes and even contract a sound designer, other contributors, as well as putting in more of my own time. For that, you can email me at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic Dot com. And I'll repeat that again at the end of the show. And now here's Aaron Bloomgarten.
2: So why do we need an initiative like LEAF? We know that there's really no viable pathway to the goals of the Paris Agreement or a pathway to a two degree or certainly 1.5 degree future without massively reducing deforestation and very quickly. Deforestation now contributes roughly 15% to global greenhouse gas emissions. Every 15 minutes, an area the size of Central Park is deforested. That means every year we lose an area roughly the size of Greece. And we know that natural solutions, including protecting forests, can be a third of the solution to climate change, And yet they receive less than 5% of climate finance. So we need to rapidly change that. We need to move the needle as far and as fast as we can to protect the world's forests. So tropical deforestation needs to come down by roughly 75 to 80% by 2030. And that's in addition to decarbonizing the grid, the electric generation system, reducing industrial emissions, and all the other tools available. Even if we do all that, even if we do all the other decarbonization, if we don't reduce deforestation, we can't meet the goals of the, of the Paris Agreement. And I think intuitively people understand that trees and forests sequester carbon, right? they their carbon sinks. But I think what people don't appreciate as much is the role that deforestation plays in actually emissions. It's as if we had a bunch of coal fired power plants sitting in the Amazon or in Indonesia or, or subtropical Africa. So we need to stop the emissions from the burning and destruction of the world's forests, in addition to preserving the ability of those forests to continue sequestering carbon. So we've got a triple emergency here. We've got a climate emergency, which we all know about, but we also have a deforestation emergency, and we've got a biodiversity and extinction emergency.
0: Yeah. People forget there were three conventions that emerged in 1992, and the convention on uh, climate change is just one. We've also had the convention on biodiversity and we had the convention on deforestation. And the climate change convention had the advantage of having this global currency. And this is a way of getting a more bang for the buck. If you look at it financially, you're making a carbon transaction, but you're getting a uh, biodiversity and deforestation benefit. And let's not forget about
2: the countless people, local peoples, indigenous communities, and other people who actually depend on the forest for their survival, whether they live in the forest or they depend on the forest for, you know, food, fuel, you know, et cetera. So LEAF is really designed to create massive mobilization of new sources of finance to make it more viable economically for communities, for jurisdictions and for countries to preserve and protect their forest. So that's why we've created LEAF. And it's really uh, we think a step change in terms of the scale. If we're going to meet the Paris Agreement goals, if we're going to have any chance on having a safe climate, we need to 10x and 20x where we are right now. And I think this has been well said by the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets that we need to actually 15x the size of the voluntary carbon markets if it's going to be a tool to get us to the goals of the Paris Agreement.
0: And you're going at a higher price. I mean, the the average price for uh, avoided deforestation, red plus... Uh, tree planting per ton has been about $5 per ton. I, I hear colloquially that it's come up a bit since we conducted our surveys, but it's still nowhere near the $10 per ton that you guys are offering. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about where this figure came from and, and how you're making the case to the entities that are making the contribution.
2: So why $10 a
0: ton and where did
2: that come from? You're quite right. The the, the price for uh uh, forest carbon credits and, and red plus credits has been let's call it between three to six dollars per ton uh some have traded higher especially you know projects that have charismatic features some lower but you know, one way to think about this is sort of either on the public side and the private side on the private side you have mainly red projects developed by you know private project developers that are typically gone through the VCS or, or process. And the average price there has been creeping up a bit, but I think has been largely around the $3 to $6 range.
0: Let's unpack this a bit with apologies again to regular listeners who have heard this before. There are two kinds of carbon payments, those coming from public entities, such as governments, and those coming from private entities, such as companies. And the different types of entities tend to favor different types of payments. Now, don't worry if some of these terms fly past you. This is just for some context. So as Aaron said, we have public entities and we have private entities. Public entities tend to favor results-based payments, which are something like results-based aid. They're development payments based on reduced rates of deforestation. Private entities or companies tend to favor carbon credits which you could argue are a form of results-based payment, but they have something extra. Namely, with carbon credits, the company that makes the payment can take credit for the reduced rate of deforestation, or more specifically, for the carbon dioxide kept out of the atmosphere by saving that forest. Because of this, you have to follow science-based methodologies that show the action that you took, save the forest, and prevented the escape of those emissions. Until now, that rigor hasn't existed at the jurisdictional level. But that's changing, as we'll explain in a later episode. As we come back to Aaron, he'll throw some acronyms around that might confuse you. So let me just give them to you up front. It basically comes down to the fact that governments don't usually make payments directly, but rather make them through entities like the World Bank's Forest Carbon Partnership Facility, or. FCPF, which you'll hear Aaron referred to, or the UNFCCC's Green Climate Fund, which negotiators initiated at the 2010 climate talks in Copenhagen, Denmark. These payments have been around $5 per ton for a long time, but Norway jumped the price to $10 per ton in a 2019 deal with Gabon, and that's the direction LEAF is going. The main thing to keep in mind is that when you hear Aaron say private side, think of carbon offsets. When you hear public side, think of payments for performance.
2: And then on the public side, basically, since Red Plus hit the international community in 2007, the know results-based payments, either through bilateral agreements, such as the ones that Norway has, or through the World Bank's FCPF, or through the Green Climate Fund,
3: for essentially the last
2: 15 years, has been pegged at $5 a ton. We know that's far too low for a lot of reasons. It's too low for the forest countries, the cost of creating emission reductions from protecting forests. We know costs more than that, depending on where you are, but it's probably between $5 and $20 per ton.
0: Between $5 and $20 per ton to produce, but selling at $5 per ton, I feel the pain because it takes me about four full days to produce even a simple episode like this once you factor in the prep time, the editing, little explainers that I drop in. Now that climate change is a hot subject in the entertainment media, I'm competing against podcasts with million-dollar budgets. And all I'm asking for is a buck or two per episode to try to give you more detail than they do. If you want more and better episodes, help me deliver them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. Now back to Aaron.
2: But we also know that the price signal in the market to drive change and to drive mitigation needs to be higher. needs to be well above $30 per ton over the next several years. So we took that as a signal, and then we generate consensus among the participants in LEAF at, at $10. Okay.
0: And you also mentioned that this is a floor price, and, uh, and prices could go up. And there's another interesting element in here that I hadn't seen before, which is that if a company pays $10 a ton for a million offsets, and that's $10 million dollars, and then the price goes up to 15, if they decide, oh, we wanna sell it, that money has to go back into the jurisdictions, right? The companies can't even profit from it. That's this. right, and I
2: think that's an important design feature of LEAP. So one of the things that we were very intentional about was thinking about the future of carbon markets and the use of uh, emission reduction credits by corporate corporates, and we looked at what are some of the challenges and issues that have plagued uh, REDD+, and voluntary carbon markets over the last 10, 15 years and how could we address them? And let me just preface this by saying there's been a lot of great projects, there's been a lot of great investments with tremendous impact on the ground. But as we're moving, let's say, to a post past world with what we are starting to see is tremendous action on the corporate side and, and and focus on mid-century net zero targets, trying to bring those in more closely. We need to move to a new, paradigm in our view of carbon markets. And so what we really tried to do with this was say, to get to scale, we need to make sure we are addressing some of these key issues that uh, voluntary carbon credits have come under fire for. And one of those is the money that buyers are paying for carbon credits getting to the ground to accelerate ambition and, and, and action. And so LEAF very intentionally was designed to maximize the funding flows that get to the jurisdiction and that get reinvested into climate action. And so what we've done is basically said, okay, the participants in LEAF, if they don't have the use for the credits themselves, right, to buy and retire, most of them are intending to buy and retire. We actually want to incentivize over committing, right? So if they overcommit, they've got some additional credits, they can resell them, but any profits should get recycled back to the jurisdiction to support additional forest protection.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. The flow of finance to action on the ground is the product. You're basically selling the fact that this money is going here, and if it's not, it's like if it's not, it's exactly you. You are selling something that, yeah, that's, that's exactly the right. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that that's the right way to think about it. Yeah. Another question. I, I I know you said that nesting is possible. You've got a jurisdictional offset, so the money the money flows into the government, I guess, and then the government distributes it as it sees fit. Whereas nesting means that you have individual projects or jurisdictions, smaller jurisdictions within the larger ones, and they can then exist separately. And I'm wondering how the carbon accounting works on this. I know that under, say, JNR, which is the VERA nested red program, money can either flow directly to projects, in which case the emission reductions are then deducted from the whole, from the frell, you know, the forest. Commission's reference level of the jurisdiction, or they can flow into some centralized body within the jurisdiction that then distributes it down and controls it a little bit. How does that work in Art for Trees? They basically say it's up to the jurisdiction, right? I don't think they have a prescribed method, am, or am I wrong? I don't really know Art for Trees as well as I know Jan. Yeah,
2: so the art team has been largely silent on nesting and basically saying it's up to the jurisdiction, right? So the jurisdiction you mm-hmm. can choose how it wants to nest. So I think what you've laid out is certainly possible within our trees, but both of those models. Well, I understand that the, the art team will be coming out with some additional guidance or thoughts, let's say, on nesting within the next few weeks. So I guess stay, stay tuned. I'll be eager to see what that looks like as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's important also to emphasize these are voluntary transactions. So they they're not going to be used for compliance purposes, which means if a company in Norway... Uh, or Germany purchases offsets from a jurisdiction in Brazil, that company cannot use that transaction to reduce their commitments within the country that they reside. So, a German car maker, they decide they're going to offset their industrial emissions from their factories in Germany, they then go and they purchase from a, a state in Brazil. They then can't take these emission reductions and say to the German government, okay take this from our total and then Germany can't go to the UNFCCC and say okay Germany reduced its reductions here instead what they what they can do is they get a claim they basically can say we reduced our carbon footprint or we reduced our net impact by helping Brazil achieve its emission reductions but that doesn't impact Germany right that's it's it's a voluntary transaction which means you don't get into these messy issues of corresponding adjustments and, and things like that,
2: right? That, that's the intention. There are four transaction pathways. The fourth transaction pathway does say that there could be a corresponding adjustment. But we don't want to get ahead of the Article 6 negotiation. We want to take our guidance from what, ha- what happens there and what, happen- what the guidance that we get from the UNFCCC. But we did want to leave that pathway open.
0: Article 6 is the part of the Paris Agreement dealing with international carbon markets, while NDCs are Nationally Determined Contributions or each country's National Climate Action Plan. One big question going forward is how carbon payments will be accounted for under the Paris Agreement. In some cases, which I won't go into now too much detail, countries will have to adjust their carbon accounts to reflect these transfers. These adjustments are called Corresponding Adjustments. It's not yet clear when corresponding adjustments will be necessary, but that will be a big topic at year-end climate talks in Glasgow. Now, back to Aaron and the four pathways.
2: The first pathway is really for sovereign government donors.
0: Mm-hmm. And basically what
2: that's saying is that sovereign donors will be making, through LEAF, results-based payments Uh, They won't be looking to take delivery of credits. They won't be using those emission reductions as part of their own NDC attainment. These are results-based payments. Right now we have the governments of the US, UK, and Norway that are involved and participate in LEAF. The other three pathways, pathway two, three, and four are for the corporate participants. Pathway two is a corporate basically making a results-based payment. So there's not transfer of the emission reduction from the host jurisdiction to the corporate, right? There's not a delivery of credits. It's just a payment. The jurisdiction could retire the credits within their own account, but there's no transfer of a carbon credit from the jurisdiction to the corporate. It's just basically a results-based payment. Pathway three is actually how we right now expect most of the companies will be participating. It's basically corporate payment for carbon emission reduction credit that then gets transferred back to the corporate for voluntary use. There's no corresponding adjustment, but the claim needs to be very transparent as we discussed earlier, right? There, it, there needs to be very transparency in corporate, in corporate claims. That's pathway three. And then pathway four envisions this idea of a corresponding adjustment. So you'd still have an emission reduction credit that would get verified and produced by the host jurisdiction, get transferred to the uh, company, but the host jurisdiction could decide on their own, right? This would be up to them to decide to make a corresponding adjustment. We're not hearing from a lot of jurisdictions that they will be doing that. But as we move forward, as the, the rules around Article Six become more clear, we want to align that with the outcome of uh, you know, the discussions around uh, Article Six. And the other thing I would say is we've been very clear around transparency in claims. And so that involves companies saying, okay, you know, these emission reduction credits have been generated by our supporting the, the forest country to protect its forests and let's say contribute to its end, attainment of its NDC, so I think the transparency mm-hmm. on how that, uh, on how these uh, reductions were uh, achieved, is also a part of the, uh, the, the, the the transparency claims that we've we've articulated in the leaf guidelines.
0: Yeah, usually when these uh, jurisdictional things are announced, they just sort of pop up. You know, they're they're negotiated bilaterally, and then we hear about them at some, some conference, but you guys put out a formal call for proposals and governments are answering these. Can you talk a bit about that approach?
2: Part of what LEAF is doing and what Emergent is doing is solving for a long-term demand signal and helping to solve this chicken or egg issue in Red Plus, which is to say, on the demand side, companies really wanna use high quality, high integrity, emission reduction credits from know, natural climate solutions, but they need to see the supply. They need to see how it's high quality. They need to make sure there's high reputational integrity. And then on the supply side, a lot of the jurisdictions are saying, look, we're willing to increase ambition, protect our forests, invest in forest protection and red plus, but we need to see this long-term demand signal. And so that's what we've been trying to solve for is to provide this long-term demand signal. So the mechanism that we used is a uh, call for proposals backed by the corporates and the uh, government donors that are part of the LEAF coalition. And then the coalition participants will select which jurisdictions they'll be moving forward with. And the aim is to have the first transactions, or at least the first set of transactions that we can announce at COP26. Mm.
0: So now, how did this thing get started? I mean, you've been around for a while. You were one of the first people I, I met when I got into this space. I knew you were working on it for a while. It's, it seemed to answer so many questions, so many challenges that people have been talking about for so long. I'm wondering if you could talk about how this whole thing managed to to, to coalesce the way it did.
3: You
2: know, I've been in uh, carbon markets and climate finance for almost 20 years now, and uh, I've spent a lot of time developing emission reduction projects, carbon projects around the world. For about the last 10 years, I've, I've uh, been an investor in these markets, managing carbon funds for most of that time with a real focus on on forest on forest carbon, and had looked at many Red Plus projects and, and really tried to invest in Red Plus. And, and the challenge there really has been that long-term demand signal. There have been lots of Red projects that have sold credits one year or two years. But as an investor, if you're gonna invest in a program, you need the long-term offtake. You need to know that there's a market that's gonna be there to provide the a revenue stream to you know, pay back an investment. From a personal perspective, I always uh, felt very good about the impact that we were having, I like to say, you know, came home at night feeling great about what we did that, that day, but then woke up in the morning in a state of panic, just mm-hmm. from a macro perspective, realizing that we're not moving far or fast enough on climate. I think we all recognize that. But you know, as I kind of evolved in the, in the industry, realized that it just doesn't all add up in the sense that we're all doing great work, but it's not getting to the scale that we need it's one step forward two steps back and, and so how do we massively rethink that you know from a personal perspective i have kids also and you, when you have kids little kids you start thinking about what's the future that that they're going to be inheriting and we just have to not double or triple we need to 10 20x what we're doing and so i really spent some time thinking about how could we fix this long-term demand signal for red plus because i really truly believe that you know deforestation is just one of the if not the most impactful, large-scale, untapped mitigation opportunities that we have for climate, just climate, and then all the other benefits. And so how can we crack that nut? So I started thinking really deeply about that. And I started thinking also about, you know, when I entered this market back in when 2003, 2004, this is before the Kyoto Protocol was ratified and before CDM really took off, before the UETS really took off. There was a nascent market in emission reduction projects, renewable energy projects, some forestry projects, some landfill projects. And one of the things that really unlocked that in those early days of the CDM was the World Bank's uh, prototype carbon fund. And basically, one of the things they did was they just stood up and said, look, we will pay at the time, I think it was $4 per ton. If you build it according to these specs, we will pay you $4 a ton.
0: The World Bank launched the Prototype Carbon Fund in 1999 after the Kyoto Protocol was negotiated but before it came into effect in 2005. The Prototype Carbon Fund was a public-private partnership designed to test new financing vehicles. Again, even these markets didn't emerge through magic. They were supported by people who believed in them. Now if you believe in Bionic Planet and like the work I'm doing, You can support me for as little as a buck an episode at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet.
2: And that just unleashed the market. And then other buyers started coming in. and, and, And I started thinking, look, we need something like that for Red Plus. And then I started really thinking about, could we use options? Could we create a blended finance vehicle? And then sat down with a kind of climate leadership team at, at the Environmental Defense Fund, EDF, for a series of brainstorming sessions. I was at uh, a partner at Encourage Capital. And so some of my partners at Encourage Capital, you know, several folks at EDF. And we just sort of whiteboarded. And actually, the premise was large-scale, viable mitigation. And we actually had ideas around energy, China, energy in China, energy in the U.S., and deforestation i sketched out the broad uh, framework of what became the red acceleration fund and then emergent lead into leaf and, and then ruben lebowski at edf was th- also working internally with some others at edf around uh, using options also to unlock this demand and it was think about the same way and then we had really connected and then this uh, kind of grew from there we got some Uh, seed capital from Good energies foundation and then Rockefeller Foundation and some other foundation and and built it up. But then fast forward, the team from the government of Norway's International Climate Forest Initiative, they came in and had... They've done a tremendous amount of work in the space of the last 15 years, as you well know, and they became real thought, thought partners and really changed the design in some meaningful ways. You know, the reason that this is a nonprofit, for example, is largely what they're, they're doing and, and they, they really supported it. And then in the evolution of uh, Leaf, you know, we brought in other government partners and and, and really this uh, other corporates. I would say Amazon has been a huge, really you know, helpful thought partner as of some of the other corporates. You know so this has really evolved over the last five years from that first brainstorming session to what it is now and, and really trying to pick up great partners along the way. And I think part of what we're trying to do here is is create a public-private initiative that says, look, we got one chance at this guys, and we gotta all hold hands, you know, and jump together. We're not all gonna necessarily agree on every single thing, but we gotta keep the North Star. That this is about scale, this is about protecting forests, this is about uh, mitigating the climate. Everything we've done has been uh, really focused on maximizing environmental impact, defined as mobilizing massive new sources of financial flows to forest protection via the creation of a new market for highest quality jurisdictional red plus carbon credits. Mm. In theory, is the, is the thesis, and that's really where we're going and always what we're keeping on top of our mind as we move through
0: this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant of, of the time, and I, I want to change tracks here just to get into the, the issue of reductions versus removals, because you guys just came out with this white paper. It's called Large-Scale Tropical Forest Protection Must Now Complement Corporate Decarbonization Strategies, and it lays out a lot of these issues. It, it puts them in, in one place and in a way that I've never— seen done so so clearly and uh, succinctly before. and so so kudos on that. One thing that jumped out at me was a section on on how many trees we have to plant to offset damages from deforestation. And you're saying, here, let me just read it. It says uh, preventing the loss of one hectare of mature carbon and biodiversity rich forest will typically avoid emissions of about three hundred and fifty five metric tons of carbon, while tropical reforestation typically sequesters just 6.7 metric tons per hectare each year. So this means that each year, as much as 50 times more land is needed for the reforestation to generate the same climate mitigation outcomes as the projected tropical forests in the first place. I've always said that temporally, um, which means that it takes a decade of growth or decades of growth to offset a week's worth of fire. But I thought that this uh, 50 to one ratio was really, really powerful, really clear. I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit more.
2: We need an all tools approach. So there's nothing wrong with reforesting. So this is why the argument is hard to counter because if you wanna reforest, you wanna restore forests, there's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, we need that too. But the prioritization of that over forest protection to me is deeply misguided, right? We absolutely need to prioritize forest protection. I think for the reasons that you've stated from a purely climate perspective, right? You just need a lot more land planted to substitute destruction of one acre of deforestation. Not to mention all the other benefits we get from standing primary forests. right? It's very hard to restore the ecosystem function and ecosystem value very hard to restore the community's indigenous lifestyles that are lost when we deforest. It, it, you know, let's say you wake up in the morning, you walk into your bathroom and the sink is overflowing and the tap is on. What's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to turn off the tap and then you're going to start you know, mopping up the floor. That's the same thing here. We've got to turn off the tap, which is the deforestation, and then we can start cleaning up by restoring and planting forests. And so somehow the message has gotten misinterpreted in this kind of net zero conversation. In the long-term, once we reverse deforestation, then we absolutely need removals to get us to net zero because we know we've got to take carbon out of the atmosphere. But let's stop putting it up there in the the first place. So the largest scale near-term and cost-effective mitigation, climate mitigation opportunities, you can really count them on one hand. The two big ones are energy, redeploying the energy infrastructure and decarbonizing the energy infrastructure, largely in the US and China. But the other big one is reversing deforestation. As we started this journey on what has ultimately become LEAF and Emergent, the first principle was how do we move the needle as far and as fast as we can on climate mitigation. And if you look at the energy infrastructure, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done on decarbonizing the, the global energy infrastructure. But the economic incentives are on our side, right? Renewable energy is becoming cheaper. It's becoming more cost competitive. In a lot of places, it's already uh, more economically viable than traditional fossil fuels, so there's some economic incentives to get us there. If you look at deforestation, there are very few economic incentives on the ground that make more sense for those local communities and jurisdictions to keep forests standing, as opposed to converting them to some productive use, agriculture. And so at the end of the day, really what we're trying to do is change the economic incentive on the ground to provide some value to a standing forest. Best way that we know to do this is is by pricing ecosystem services. As you say, the ecosystem service that people are willing to pay for is carbon. So that was the the first principle of of designing what's become emergent and, and leaf.
0: A lot of these old arguments are coming back. One is that we can't offset industrial emissions, fossil fuel emissions with uh, terrestrial offsets. You know, that if it comes out of the ground like a fossil fuel, it should go back into the ground, a uh, carbon capture and storage technology. Uh, And if it comes from the land, from trees, it should go back into the land and trees. And I'm, I'm hearing this more and more from young graduate students, I, I, and, it, and it ties into this other thing about an issue you touched on, which is additionality, because the argument that's being made aggressively now is that the additionality in these forestry projects is is nebulous compared to carbon capture and storage, because the only economic reason for carbon capture and storage is to capture carbon and store it. And I'm just wondering if you if you had a, a comment on that. To be honest,
2: I really don't understand those arguments. Those those arguments seem overly academic, trying to match apples to apples when the atmosphere only cares about emission reductions. (laughs) And I think we have a technology that can do direct air capture, and it's called a tree, and it's been around and working and functional for quite a while. And by the way, it provides lots of other co-benefits, as we've talked about, biodiversity, local air benefits, local environmental benefits, uh, etc. So, I really don't understand those those arguments. They don't make a lot of sense to me. If it's an additionality argument, we've tried to really address that issue with with LEAF and with the use of ARC trees. And the way that ARC trees works is it looks at a five-year historic average, which becomes the baseline. And then deductions for things like uncertainty and, and, and et cetera, leakage. But that then becomes the baseline, that five-year historic uh, historic average. So I don't know how one could say there's not additionality in avoided deforestation when clearly we've got massive deforestation happening around the world and very few economic incentives to address it. So it seems like it's extremely additional. the The thought that we would try to invent some new technology that essentially can do what Trees already do um, before we deploy as much capital as we can to protecting the world's forest. So we really get global deforestation to zero and start massively restoring and ecosystems and restoring forests. All of that, in my view, all of that money that we'd be developing for direct air capture technology should be deployed to that, mm-hmm. that urgent mission first
0: the point you made at the opening is is important too, because the other argument that I keep hearing is that they're um, saving forests instead of reducing their industrial emissions. And the way I see it, you're not saving a forest instead of reducing your industrial emissions, you're saving a forest to go beyond what you can do right now.
2: Exactly. And that's another design feature of LEAF that we were very intentional about. And so one of the, I think, Innovations of Leaf is that we've put criteria on buyers as well as the suppliers. So, of course, over the last twenty years, carbon markets have always put high integrity criteria on suppliers. You know, we you need to prove that the emission reductions are real, they're additional, verified, etc. And and we're certainly doing that with Leaf through the Art Tree Standard. But we're also doing is putting participation criteria on companies. In other words, you can only participate as a company, as a buyer, if you meet these criteria and those criteria are designed to ensure that companies are doing all they can to reduce their own emissions within their operations and within their value chains and just using emission reduction credits for the hard to abate emissions. So that's really important that we've got five criteria and we've actually denied companies from participating because they haven't ticked off all the criteria. We haven't said you, can't, you can never join. We just said, you know, come back when you can demonstrate that you've met all these five criteria. But one of the unintended good consequences has been motivating companies who want to participate to accelerate their internal sustainability initiatives. For example, join the UN race to zero. You've got to publicly and transparently report all three scopes of emissions, right? You've got to commit to mid-century net-zero goals. You, know, you have to set science-based targets. So this is actually accelerating internal conversations within corporates at the highest levels as part of this pathway to joining the LEAF coalition, which I think is actually really interesting and a sort of unintended positive
0: impact of. of yeah, that brings a Two points that, that I wanted to elaborate on. One is uh, net zero. And net zero is an end point where we end up in 2050, after we've exhausted all reductions, after we've done everything technologically possible, and then we're only using removals to mop up residual emissions that just cannot be eliminated. And that's just, they're going to be there. So I think that, that distinction isn't often made. That with companies right now, if all they do is make a a, a 2050 net zero pledge, which everyone's doing... That's that's 30 years away. What do you do in the meantime? Well, you have to go carbon neutral, which is different from net zero. Carbon neutral is is offsetting the emissions you generate today by financing either reductions or removals. And that I just wanted to make that clear because I think it's missed quite often in this. And then the other one was that companies that join this, because you have these other these other commitments they have to make, they start to take a deeper look internally. We actually found that at Ecosystem Marketplace in 2017, I think it was, we did an analysis of of, of buyer behavior, like bu- corporate buyers that use voluntary markets. And one thing we found that was very interesting, because there was this uh, perception out there that companies were buying these as, as like indulgences, you know, to get out of doing anything. And what what we found is the opposite was true. Com- companies may have started that way. In fact, I spoke to people in corporate entities who told me that they did start that way. They thought we could go ahead and just buy offsets and and not have to worry about anything. But once they had a price on carbon, an internal price, they suddenly had to start paying more attention to their emissions. And they started identifying all these ways of reducing. And it really became a way of focusing their attention on how to reduce absolute emissions. In a nutshell, we found that, overall, companies that did offset emissions voluntarily You know, we didn't look at the ones that were offsetting for compliance reasons, but the ones that were voluntarily offsetting tended to have, be the ones that had the most comprehensive, realistic, structured, methodological approach to also reducing emissions internally. Uh, And it it sounds like the same thing is just playing out here, but at a larger scale.
2: Listen, that's a great point. We know there's not a silver bullet Mm -hmm. solution to climate change, but if there is one most important systemic tool that we have, it would be putting a price on carbon. It changes both operating capital decisions, but importantly, it changes capital uh, budgeting decisions, long-term capital budgeting decisions. Mm
1: -hmm. In other words, the
2: view of of companies, the view of investors, the view of policymakers on the future of carbon price, Mm -hmm. and if there is a robust carbon price, that will change how we invest capital investments now that will get locked in for, who knows? 5, 10, 30, 50 years if it's a long-lived energy infrastructure.
0: Aaron Blumgarten of the Leaf Coalition closing out this edition of Bionic Planet. And if you like the show and you want more and better episodes, help me give them to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes all at once, you don't get whacked either. The web address, again, is not the Bionic Planet website, but the Patreon website, patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. To really make the show a hit i need not just buy-in from all of you listeners i need the kind of budget that the big guys are coming into the space with if you're a business that wants to sponsor the show or a philanthropist who wants to make a larger donation i'm now fiscally sponsored through manga bay as a non-profit that means you can make a large tax deductible donation which can help me generate a lot of episodes and even contract a sound designer other contributors a producer as well as putting in more of my own time. For that, you can email me directly at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. Hope to hear from someone on this, but I give you my word I'll keep plugging away even without it. You can also help just by giving me a good five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get, And the more ears I get, the more minds we can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.